KCF Technologies presents Industrial Transformation, Stories of Failure and Success from the Front Lines of American Manufacturing. Welcome back to the Industrial Transformation Podcast. Once again, I'm Jeremy Frank of KCF Technologies, and I have with me uh, to have a conversation today, Mr. Tom Brodsky, who is one of my absolute favorite customers and change agents within industrial transformation. Tom has 35 years and more in driving asset reliability and maintenance operation improvements. He's had roles at factories. He's had uh, roles at the corporate level. He's worked across 15 different countries in, in different process industries, pulp and paper, mining, processing, oil and gas. And he's also been in discrete manufacturing in the automotive and consumer products industries and uh, probably a lot more than that. But I'd just like to say welcome, Tom, and great to have a conversation with you today. Thanks, Jeremy. It's always interesting to hear my resume a little bit. <laughs> Jack of all trades, master of none, but uh, a lot of experience out there. So thanks. Well, glad to have you here. And I, I maybe skipped over the fact 35 plus years, but also recently and happily retired. Yes. And so able to have just a really nice conversation about some of the things he's done and his his views on industrial transformation for the benefit of the listeners. Great. Great. I'm ready. Wonderful. Well, if I could just make a comment, you know, at, at the big picture, we work with a bunch of different industries, critical industries, the biggest companies that are doing the most important things. And you've, as, as we just said, you've been doing a lot of this. What I would say to you, Tom, is out of everyone that we work with, what I've observed is that, um, you know, the, you're the person who showed the way to drive not, not just technology deployment, but organizational change, showing a, a large organization how to drive technology deployment and the accompanying people part, the, the organizational change across just a gigantic global organizations. And I, I really credit you with that, and honestly, I have a hard time understanding exactly how you've done it and what your what your approach is, and that's what I really am just excited to talk with you about. Uh, it, it's a great question because uh, quite often, you know, we have these new widgets, we have the new technologies, the innovation that comes to us, and uh, it's frankly, it's easy to to deploy the technology, but quite often, what we forget at the organization level, at the at the plants, at the corporate level are the folks, the people that have to actually use the technology and integrate that, integrate this technology into their work process. And I think, I think what you would find, Jeremy, is that if you looked at deployments of technology, whatever it might be, if it might be a software, it might be a, 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 a wireless sensor, um, I think what you would see is the successful companies that really gain and benefit, um, drive the value from the technology, they they do they have a process for the integration of the technology itself, but they also put together that that framework that's needed to integrate their people. And without the people, you know, that technology will just sit on the desk. It'll just sit on that piece of equipment and tell you absolutely nothing. But if you have your if you have your your floor employees, if you have your supervisors, if you have your your engineering staff, your operations staff, your your CEO, your vice presidents understanding how that work process happens within their organizations. 
they can be supportive of it with the folks that are using it. And, and I think that's what really drives the value. Um, I, I think, and I think what you would recall with our experience together deploying, you know, the, the tens of thousands of sensors that we did is that the sites that were absolutely, you know, the rock stars, if you will, the A players were the ones that integrated this technology with their, with the people and they made it part of their workflow and, and, and they became very innovative with it. They, they, they really grabbed the, the value out of it. And, it, and I, I don't want to get over on, over on this, but, but I think what they found is that their, their return on investment, you know, the money that they spent to bring in, bring in this technology uh, far surpassed those that did not integrate their people. Mm. You know, it's, it's funny. If I go back to when we, we probably first met each other, what, probably 2014 or 15, mm -hmm. somewhere in that, in that range, we had early on, you know, so we were, I mean, we deployed our first wireless sensor on industrial machines powered by energy harvesting actually in 2006, right? And we were funded by the government to start developing this stuff in 2004 and even before that. And nothing, you know, the market wasn't ready and things weren't really happening. We started deploying the technology in 2011 into 12. And it, it one of the things that I noticed is it just was the people part wasn't getting addressed. And, and one of the signs of it, I remember distinctly one of our customers that I won't name, it wasn't anywhere you worked. Uh, we went back to a site where we delivered the sensors to them and, you know, six months later, they were still sitting in a cardboard box, you know, the majority of them. And, and that's just obvious, but, but to go from that to where you actually have people looking at the screens and deciding to change the way that they do their work, it is, I wouldn't even say it's, it, it's two parts of it. It's, um, it, one is the enabler and the second part, the people part is the actual work. I mean, that's the actual improvement in my opinion. And you've done it. So if, could, maybe just to go kind of executive level to start with, what's your secret? You know, how did you, how did you achieve this thing? That, and honestly, so many other organizations that I have seen and currently see don't get it yet. They're not doing it. They're not doing what you've done. What's your, what's your secret? I think, you know, and it's quite simple. I, you know, I've, I've, I've done this throughout my career. It really doesn't matter if it's, you know, deploying uh, wireless sensors or, you know, a new process. But I think what, what's important, and again, the people part is uh, WIFM, and you've probably heard this before, but it's what's in it for me. Mm. And if, if it's the CEO, if it's the vice president of operations, or if it's the um, senior vibration technician at the plant level, you have to explain to those individuals what's in it for me. Mm. And if I'm the general manager and I'm coming to him and saying, hey, GM, I want to give you 3,000 sensors and I'm going to go stick these on your equipment. He's going to go, why are you going to do this? What's in, what's in it for me? Mm -hmm. And what I'm going to tell him is I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to give you more availability. I'm going to reduce your maintenance cost. I'm going okay. to make it more reliable. And on the other hand, if you get down at the ground level where the, where the work really happens, I'm talking to the vibration technician, what's in it for me? I'm going to, I'm going to make you, um, Joe vibration tech rockstar. I'm going to make you a problem solver. So if, if, if I talk to a vibration tech who's been doing this work for 30 years and I explain to him, if I tell him I'm going to change his life, he's not going to be too happy. He's going to go into the crossed arms. But if I say, okay, here's how I can help you. Here's how I can make your life better. Here's how I can prevent you from getting calls at two in the morning. What's in it for me? 
I'm working an eight hour day. I'm solving problems, not looking for problems because I have sensors doing it now. That's what's important. That mm-hmm. I think that's the secret sauce. Because if you can help individual under, help individuals understand how their life will be better in the work environment, this is where this is the secret sauce. It makes an awful lot of sense, and I, you know, a lot of people don't get that yet, and that's why I I just really appreciate you coming on to share some of this because there's more behind it. We'll get deeper into it, but I um that makes just it it, it seems so simple when you say it, you know, it but but I know. There's so many people that just don't behave that way. So, yeah. Oh, absolutely difficult. And and it's it's not just wireless sensors. It's not just KCF. It, it's any part of organizational change or changing the environment within the workforce. So I want to just dive a little bit into something that I know you've, you've talked about and have kind of um, scoped out in your work. It's sort of, you know, you're a visionary in driving these things forward, but you actually have a vision for the, you know, the, the future factory that you've not only conceived of, but have actually achieved and, and driven forward, been a part of achieving and driving forward at a large organization, uh, multiple organizations. Can you just describe for us a bit about kind of your vision and what the future factory would be and should be? I, I, yeah, I, I think if I'm thinking about the future factory and, and and what does that mean to you know anyone that's listening or to myself, and really it's for me, it's understanding what innovations are out there in the world that can make make my systems, my processes, my factories more available so I can produce more product for my customers at a reduced cost. And I guess the other future look is, and, and again, I come from a very kind of a narrow focus. I come from the maintenance and reliability world. So my, my, my thinking has always been, and traditionally, maintenance and reliability has been the necessary evil. It's been the cost. And, and the, the the vision forward for for me and maybe for the projects and and for the projects I worked on is how do we monetize maintenance? How do we monetize reliability? How do we take a different point of view and change that paradigm within the overall organization? And and this this for me was quite an evolution actually going through this and bringing in new technology. So you know our initial vision was how do from again from a maintenance and reliability point of view is um, if we think about the uh, uh, potential failure curve, how do we how do we move to the left on that curve? How do we reduce failures in our equipment? How do we provide, say, a look into the future, understanding asset health? So if we can look into the future and say, if I knew that a piece of equipment was going to fail, say, 90 days, 120 days in, in, in the future versus waiting for that unplanned event, or maybe just kind of knowing it might fail. But if I was absolutely sure that that piece of equipment was going to fail in 90 days, that would really change my world. It would reduce my cost. It, I could I could man- manage my availability. I, I could really raise the bar as to how I run my operations. So we started thinking about it that way. But I think I think what was important for 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 me in this evolution was is that in the beginning and. and hope we can talk about this, but we started out with maybe experimentation and we started having these learnings along the way. And um, I guess the biggest learning and, and maybe the aha moment was, is that maybe we didn't raise the bar high enough when we were thinking about the future factory. There was a lot more value to be gained than just thinking 190 days or 100, 120 days into the future. Really, what we learned was was there was more value in understanding 
how our processes impacted the health of our equipment. And that started changing the paradigms because now we're looking at not just maintenance and reliability and that 90-day view, but now we're looking at, okay, operations, how can you help us improve our asset health? And, and that was a huge moment. Um, I call it the 60-40 split or the 50-30-20, whatever you want to call it. But we honestly, that 90-day look forward was really only 20% of the value that we could capture. Mm. The real value was understanding how operations is operating their equipment and maybe causing damage to that equipment. And, and I think if any of our listeners are, listeners are maintenance people or reliability people, always in the back of their mind, they, they knew or they know that somehow there might be that operator out there or that change in process that might be damaging our equipment. But, but as maintenance people or reliability people, we're always held responsible for it. And now, now I have transparency into the whole system, not just that piece of equipment. So it, 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 it opened up a lot of windows for us um, in that, that future factory look, if you will. I, I, I liken it to this, Jeremy. I, I, I think about I'm in a room with four walls and, and the traditional paradigms around operations and maintenance and reliability were I have one window in that room. I have the vibration tech that goes out. I have the routes that are done. But that's only my one look into the window. But the future factory gives us four four walls with windows in every one of those walls. Now I have transparency looking around at my entire asset base. I don't know if that makes sense, but that that's that's how it, that's how the future factory looks to us now. Transparency, visibility, reducing costs, making availability. Yeah, I appreciate that and the the metaphor. What the sixty forty and the fifty thirty twenty, whichever. Yeah. Just for for the listener again, so you know we've we've experienced a lot of these things together. Just can you explain the you know what are the numbers in the sixty forty? Is that how it should be, or is that how how you're thinking changed? Like what does fifty thirty twenty mean to you? Sure, and and again, fifty thirty twenty was was really a learning, and the twenty percent. So it's fifty percent, thirty percent, twenty percent, twenty percent looking into the future, understanding. The, the bearing might be failing on that piece of equipment. The 30% was one of our aha moments, our aha moments was when we learned that when maintenance technicians went out and did work on the equipment in our plants, you know, not always did they do it properly. Or when they went out to do a PM and they tightened the belt on the fan and they didn't use a tension gauge to ensure that they did the proper PM on that fan, they actually induced failure into that piece of equipment. And then the 50% is where you think about our operators and there's the one operator, here, perfect example, you have, we, we had three shifts running a piece of equipment and you, you looked at the first shift and, there, and you looked at the vibration on that equipment and it was absolutely perfect. You looked at the second shift, looked at the vibration on that equipment, everything was perfect. And then suddenly third shift would come in at you know 10 p.m. And, and they, they might go out and change all the dials on the equipment. And now that equipment is, you know, the pumps are cavitating, the, the fans are vibrating. And it's all because maybe that third shift wasn't trained properly, doesn't understand the process, whatever. The, it really doesn't matter. We're not, we're not doing a blame game, but we're trying to understand how can we improve that third shift. So that 50% is what in our process is impacting or damaging our equipment. Mm. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I like to use the word illuminate. You know, I sometimes I think of it as so much of what because I see this across all these industries and 
And, you know, honestly, that that middle part, the 30, I've seen it as high as 80, you know, where 80 percent literally in critical industries where 80 percent of the maintenance is performed, you know, poorly. And it's uh, it's wild. I like to the, the illuminate. I like to think of it, you know, like the whole industrial world, especially balance of plant. It's kind of like you, you just had a dark room and there's all these issues in there. Mm-hmm. You know, you got like the you got water on the floor, you got rats scurrying around, you got like broken windows and all this stuff. And as soon as you turn the light on, as soon as you shine a light in there, it's really easy to see the problems until you have the light. It's almost impossible because they don't know. Nobody knows that these, these consequences are degrading things until you shine the light. Absolutely. And and I think, I think the other piece that's important to remember is that, that, that 30 and 50%, it's not a, it's not an opportunity to point a finger to, cause blame it's an opportunity for improvement and it might be the mechanic that doesn't know he needs to use a belt tensioner it's the operator that doesn't know he should be adding some chemical to the process to prevent cavitation it's it's looking for those opportunities for improvement and and that's where the real value is yeah yeah i I think that's great the um maybe the next thing you touched on the the p to f curve Mm -hmm. and you know, really kind of the evolution beyond that is the D to I to P to F curve. Could you just maybe talk a little bit about what that means to you and what, what people can learn from that? Sure. And, and, uh, so traditionally in maintenance and in, in the reliability field, um, you'll hear quite often what's called the P to F curve and it's the potential failure curve, if you will. And once you induce some sort of failure into a, a device, maybe it's a bearing, then that 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 bearing slowly degrades until it fails, and uh, if if you go on the web and browse, you can find this anywhere. But there there are several illustrations of what's what is called the DIPF curve, and it's design, install, potential, and then failure. And uh, what 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 you'll see is when you look on that curve, it's going left to right. DIPF. What you what you're seeing is that if you're on the left side of the DIPF curve. At that point in time, when that new asset is is put in place, when it's designed, you can design in, um, uh, I don't know, characteristics that will help that piece of equipment last longer, to run longer, to not fail. But also, there are things you can do to, when you get to the I part, when the equipment is installed and, and, and um, uh when the equipment is installed and then, uh, oh, God, I'm looking for the word here. Started up, I guess. C- commissioned, perhaps? Commissioned, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, thanks. Commissioned. And uh, and then uh, how do we operate that equipment? So as I was talking earlier, what you try to do during the I phase of that curve is to optimize during commissioning to ensure that you're not damaging your equipment. Find the optimal point of operations where you're getting the production you need as well as you're running the equipment in the proper state so it's not inducing failure into those bearings into the belts whatever the piece of equipment might be so if you think traditional p to f curve and maintenance and reliability and then you start thinking really new paradigms are being set with all this new innovative technologies like kcf is that how do we shift to the left on that curve where we're not even inducing um, damage to that equipment and, and, and I really challenge everybody to go out and look at DIPF curves because you'll, you'll, you'll get it. You'll understand what you're trying to do. 
So if I don't damage my equipment, that equipment will last longer over its over its extended life. So for people who don't who haven't done what you've done, you know, and who haven't uh, been a part of organizations that are really on this transformation journey and doing it successfully, I, I feel like it might be helpful. And I'm kind of curious where you where you'd pick this number. If you roll back the clock five years and then even today from from the industries you've seen and all this experience you've had, how bad is it? You know, we talk about in the in the the intro to this podcast, we talk about the failures and successes from from industry. You know, if you look at how optimally things are designed and installed so that they can operate, you know, in this perfectly ideal state, how, how close is it to that perfect state five years ago and how close is it now, do you think? Um, that's a great question. I would say the, um, if, if you think about industry, you think, and it really doesn't matter which industry it is, you'll find that there are innovators out there. There are companies that will take the risk and apply new technologies and ultimately they gain the benefit of it they might not gain from that that specific technology that they start with but they'll have learnings along the way and i think and i've I've been to several conferences where this question has come up and i would say there's probably 10 to 15 percent of the folks in industry and that's very general using that use loosely um are starting to reap the benefits of of these new technologies Mm -hmm. and um and, and I don't know if it's right or wrong, but it's just my gut feel. And I would say that the other, you know, 80 to 85% are just putting their toe in the water at this point. And um, I think there's, a, you know, like anything, there's a certain amount of hesitation. Um, there's certain barriers in the way when it comes to capital expenditure and things like that. So um, I think quite often maintenance and re- reliability professionals struggle with trying to, uh, justify capital expenditures on this. But I, I, I share with them that um, the, the benefits are there and, 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 um, and they're there, they're, they're, they're easy to um, illustrate to your management. Um, I, I would say the, the, the technology, especially you know with KCF technology, I can tell you that, is uh, very well proven, it's matured, um, but I think there's, there's more to come. I think when you start taking the technology and you start integrating in analytics and different softwares that take all this information that you have, process information, vibration information, pressure, whatever it might be, um, the, 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 the value is just growing and growing and growing. But I think uh, still at this time, there's 80% of the folks out there that are still not quite sure, they're hesitant, and really to you know launch your company into the to the to the next wave, if you will, into the next evolution of technology. It's the time is now. I think a lot of this technology is proven. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that helped answer the question or not, but definitely. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, so uh, it, it's interesting because you know you say like fifteen percent, ten to fifty percent are really doing it and and are really driving organizational change and value, and maybe eighty five percent aren't. I think if you ask people, are they or are they not? And you see this in surveys, you know, from McKinsey and Gartner and all this stuff. They are, uh, I think a much higher percentage of people would say that they are doing this. However, you see the same thing I do, you know, the, 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 I think, but they just don't get it. They, they don't get it. It's not that they don't get what they want to do. What I see is that people just don't have a real grasp of what's actually possible. You know, case in point, I, we just visited one of our oil and gas customers last week. I talked to Buddy Peterson on this podcast recently, 
And he talked about it quite openly that um, the the amount of change that was possible, the amount of improvement that was possible was far beyond. I mean, it was three times greater than his wildest dreams. And it and it wasn't like the technology enabled that. It's just that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. There's more room for improvement than I think people could possibly imagine. I mean, I can tell you one, like I'm on the, I've been on the, the board of directors for the Hydraulic Institute, the, the industrial pumps and, and motors. And um, a frequently quoted statistic is that the, the efficiency of industrial pump systems is only about 40% on average. Yeah. And when you have a pump, and that's about half what it should be, but when the when the efficiency is half what it should be, the vibration is like eight to ten times worse than it should be. Absolutely. And, and that's you know you fix that problem, you solve a, just a massive economic hole that drains out of our economy every year. And absolutely. And and I I love the point because I think people are not aware of the potential that's out there. And again, that was my learning as well along the way. This you know this this is an evolution obviously, but. That was my learning. I, you know, it's once we learned that there was more than that 20%, once we learned that we could start taking, you know, how do we improve our operations? How do we change our practices? Then it was like, how fast can we do this? Let's hurry up and get this done because there's value out there. But, you know, it, it's, it's always, there's a lot of reluctance and unfortunately, but it, it's to come. Especially once people really start to like change. So far, I've not found that many people that like change. <laughs> we'll see if that changes. Uh, but speaking of change, I, I wanted to just talk about another thing that I know you thought deeply about and you've done. Again, something that you've done that most people haven't done is just the evolution of this, like how you actually take the application of technology uh, to go out and you know illuminate, solve these real problems. How does that actually work? Like, what are the steps? What are the steps from when you just begin until you reach the the finish line, or at least a partial finish line? Can you talk us through that a little bit? Sure, sure. Um, I I think it's 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 really good to have some visionaries in your organization, obviously. But um, and 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 I was fortunate to have that support in my organization, and and with that, we really started. And I would say there are probably three phases to this to this evolution. And uh, again, we were looking at how do we how do we how do we utilize innovative technologies to look at that future factory? And uh, so what we did, and 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 we tried to do it as quick as possible. And and you'll see this if you if you read the trade journals, if you look in the different uh, conferences, you'll see that a lot of folks are doing trials and experimentation. And and you can do trials and experimentations till you're blue in the face, but at some point in time, you have you have to move forward. But this is what we did. We we quickly did trials and experimentation with with KCF Technologies with was one of many. And uh, fortunately for me, I was part of that exercise and, and uh, it, it, it proved to us very quickly that trial, this trials and experimentation phase was a winner. And uh, so we did this over weeks. Um, we looked for, you know, what can we do quickly? What, where are the high value areas? But most important is, you know, what learnings and, and what definitions can we start creating for future steps? You know what are those what are those learnings and then where does the value start coming to us? Because when you start looking at you know when you start looking at the future and you may be considering greater deployments of technology like KCF, you got to be able to have the business case for it, and and that's what we were looking for as well. Is so quick uh, learnings and then where's the value? 
And then we really went into the next phase, which was looking at, okay, let, let's capture some of this value quickly. Let's look at what is our critical equipment and then where are our bad actors? And, mm. and, uh, and, and we went from maybe deploying 10 to 20 to 50 sensors at a site through trial and experimentation to, okay, let's go put out 100 to 500 sensors, but let's put them on those bad actors. Let's put them on the critical equipment. And what we were looking there again was let's get the high value, let's get the fast payback, those things that are impacting our maintenance costs, those things that are impacting availability of our of our equipment so that we're not impacting, you know, not having downtime. And then what we're able to take from that is we started establishing strategies. Mm-hmm. So now, now we're looking. So if, if, for example, in my world, um, boilers or steam plants. Um, boilers and steam plants have feed water pumps, they have ID fans, FD fans, things like that. Critical equipment in our in our processes. And if one of those two were to fail, life is really bad. Things go south real quick. And uh, so we started learning on that, those critical equipment, those bad actors. And we started building strategies to go to future deployments, greater deployments. And then, as you mentioned earlier, Jeremy, we started thinking about how is this going to impact the organization? We started thinking about you know, the what's in it for me, because if we're going to go to greater deployments, greater capitaliz- capitalization of this equipment, of, of this technology, we're going to have to have even a better business case. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we got that. We, we, I mean, the, the, the critical equipment, but especially the bad actors, really told us where the money was. And uh, now it's like, okay, how do we get this comprehensive? How do we get this in balance of plant? And I'm not talking about balance of plant of putting sensors on the water cooler, but I'm thinking on those pieces of equipment that are important to the process, important to the business, important to availability in the plant. And uh, so we went after this comprehensive value creation, if you will. And how do we get this across the mills? So we were going from maybe 100 sensors to a facility to 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 sensors in a plant. And now you start thinking about who am I impacting? Again, getting back to those individuals in the organization that would be um, impacted by this. Operators, uh, vibration technicians, uh, maintenance personnel, reliability personnel, plant managers. Everybody's part of this this thing, if you will. And how do we start getting transparency of all this information that suddenly starts coming to us out to the right people? So the operators can start making the right choices when they're operating their equipment and not damaging it so that the vibration tech can be problem solvers, not problem finders. And he's not doing routes that are really not producing anything or yielding anything, but doing routes that are important and solving the problems at hand. So we started looking at work process and and really that was the large scale deployment. That's where the wind started happening is getting people involved and understanding how it impacted them. And then I would say some of the other learnings in that mass deployments was rationalizing our old processes to meet the new technology. Um, If you're familiar with preventative maintenance routes, uh, some of our plants had literally thousands upon thousands of, of, of maintenance PMs, preventive maintenance routes. And really with this type of technology, we were able to rationalize those and reduce the number of preventive maintenance routes. And if you think about that, now we're, we're really getting two wins out of that. We were getting better understanding of our assets, but we we're now producing more availability of the people that were doing the old PMs. 
we had more technician time available to do problem solving, if you will, or fixing things that were broke. So those were the big ones. And I think the last thing that was important was system integration, because I would imagine in a lot of the listeners, uh, plants and factories that they have historians, data historians, they have SCADA systems. And what we were able to do is start taking the data, this this tsunami of data, this information, this transparency that we were getting from KCF and integrating it into the SCADA systems, into the data historians. And it, it allowed us to have more visibility at the plant level. So it was, it was a great step. It was trial and expect, experimentation, go after those critical bad actors and find the value and then scale up. Yeah. It, you know, it's awesome. I, I think that's one of the most important lessons. I'm so glad you share that, that three-step process because I think so many, so many people are just confused about how to drive change. You know, it's so, there's something about you that's, that's kind of innate to, the, to your, the way you see the world, but a lot of people struggle with it. But the neat thing about it is you go into that first phase of trial and experimentation, you can try a bunch of things and you can find out what works, what doesn't work. And there's a lot of choices out there. But once you prove that it works, you know you have something to, to take it. But that step two is maybe the most important. If you focus on the high priority applications, you fund your whole program because yep. you're on the highest value applications. And that that's the brilliance of it, I think. And then when you get to step three, you're, you're just kind of, um, you know, you're sweeping the floor. You're, you're capturing the rest of the value proposition and it's there. But if you try to do either everything at once or skip steps and, and just do 20 things at the same time, that's where everybody stalls and it, you've done it very differently. So I commend you for that. It's been Thanks. fun to watch. It, it, honestly, it was a great experience. It was probably one of the best things throughout my career, I have to say. That's awesome. Hey, can I, you know, it's amazing how fast the time goes when we do these interviews, but I have a, just a couple questions I want to ask you to start wrapping up that fit right into that. So your career, you know, you've done this for 35 plus years, all these countries, you've done amazing things. Some things I know about that are too either detailed or complicated to talk about in an interview. I'm curious, so here you are now and you've retired. What is it that that either you think can change? What's the biggest problem that kind of drives you crazy and you wish you could just eradicate in, in this like industrial world or, or just broadly? <laughs> I think we've talked about it. I think it's this reluctance and I think it's this... Um, a reluctance. I don't want to bash management or leadership, but quite often there's this reluctance to try new things, to take on change. I think, and I think the other piece that you brought up too was I, I, I wish when when I go to organizations that there would be more integration of the workforce when things like this come about. I mean, we I think we hit them hit on them in the discussion because absolutely as you said earlier you can come into a plant or a factory or you know a refinery and you can drop 5000 sensors on on the on the porch or on their table and if 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 the workforce if the leadership if if the management does not understand the value in this those 5000 sensors are just going to sit there in the box as you mentioned earlier and and what could be more frustrating than to spend this this huge amount of capital to do this and then no value come from it i i, yeah. I guess that drives me crazy. And the worst part is, is you have great people in, in, in a lot of these organizations that are that are willing to to try the change at least. And uh, and sometimes they never get the opportunity to do that. And again, I think if you have to share where the value is. You have to share where, you know, what's in it for me at all levels. Yeah, I, I, I definitely get that. It, but most people don't, you know, it's ideally we're working to change that behavior 
my second question for you is, is the follow-on, which is how are things going in your view? You know, you've accomplished a lot, but now you're, you know, you can kind of retire and take it a little bit easy. But if you if you look out five or ten years, both from the leadership willingness to drive change, and then, um, you know, there's a whole lot of change going on in the workforce. You know, the people retiring, new people coming in. Do you think it's getting better or worse, or not changing very much? Those dynamics. I'm optimistic. I really am. I think people are are going to be taken into this world kicking and screaming if it has to be that way. But um, and, and it's it's like with any technology, you know, the cell phone, for example, it 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 slowly came about, and here we are. I mean. Do you see anyone that doesn't have a uh, you know a smartphone in their hand? And I think this will be no different with this sort of technology. I think folks will, the the leaders, the innovators will capture the value ahead of their their counterparts, and their counterparts are going to miss out on those opportunities. But ultimately, they're going to have to um, move into this world because without this, there are too many dilemmas out there that will impact their survival. And without this technology. They, they, they certainly will not survive in, in their work in their in their business, whatever it might be. I don't care if it's oil and gas or um, mining, pulp and paper, whatever it might be. There, if if you don't go down this road, ultimately you're gonna you're gonna be a, a laggard and you will not survive. That, that's my gut feel. And and but Jeremy, I don't want, I don't want to make them sound bad, but I, I I really say there's optimism here. I think people will will catch on to this. I really do. And I'm seeing it. I mean, I, I talk to my peers. I talk to a lot of folks across several different industries. And uh, you, you'll start seeing these things transforming into the into their businesses. It's yeah. good. I agree. And I, I mean, I certainly, it, urgency will, you know, urgency has a tendency to drive action. And we're definitely, you know, it's part of what's driving some our growth is it just, oh, it's, sure. um, you know, it is absolutely happening. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that. One final question I have for you, and I, I like I ask this of most of the people that I get a chance to sit down and talk with, uh, that are you know really visionaries and change leaders. What is something that you that you see differently than others? What is something that that you believe is true, you know to be true, but other people disagree with you about? It's a great question, and I think you know I I, I did a doctorate in organizational behavior and change, so I have I would say, and and I, and I run into this a lot, and and you know, I think a lot of folks, uh, especially in the leadership roles, uh, don't appreciate the value in their workforce. And and again, this goes back to our earlier discussion. And I think if you're not capturing that, again, all the sensors in the world, all the softwares in the world won't make a, a hill of beans for you. If you're not impacting your workforce first, first, um, you're lost. You really are. And, uh, and, 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 and believe me, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of research out there that, that prove this out, but, it, but it's funny. It seems like we go through this time and time again. And, uh, you know, this, 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 this thing called change. And it seems as it almost seems generational, um, gener yeah, generational where it, it doesn't always happen. And we have to relearn this, this lesson. And uh, it's sad that we have to relearn this lesson again and again. And but it, it's, I guess, the nature of the beast. But quite often, you know, everybody thinks they're a great leader, and and I thought I was one too. But without those learnings and that experience, you really don't become a leader until you've fought through them either. So I don't know if that even answered the question, Jeremy. But oh, definitely, Andrew, on that one for hours. So yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I think there's really two answers for people to take away. One's easy, one's hard. 
uh, the hard way is get a PhD in organizational change and <laughs> like Tom or the easier path, just listen to Tom's advice and focus on the people, stupid. You yeah. know, like if you ask them the question, what's it for them and make it work? I mean, I, that just absolutely resonates with everything I've seen is most people can't really drive change effectively. But if you focus on what people need and and you give them something that's tangible and valuable that they want, then it's actually not that hard. So I think it's, it's a great thing to share. I appreciate that. Is there anything else that's on your mind that you'd like to share with the industrial transformation audience? Wow. A thousand things. Um, no, I, not really. I, I, Jeremy, I just want to thank you for the opportunity, you know, and likewise, you know, it's, it's been great working with KCF and, and I hope we continue the relationships. So thank you so much. So appreciate working with you and continuing to work with you. And I appreciate you taking this time to, to talk with us here today. And this, this has been a conversation with Tom Brodsky and this is Jeremy Frank and it's the Industrial Transformation Podcast.